So we've developed a very unique measurement unit, sensor unit, you can call it IoT devices, that are connected at the low voltage, meaning, you know, Adriel, you can have one of our measurement units connected to your power plug at your home. So there's no need whatsoever to connect them at high voltage, medium voltage, low voltage substations of the grid. So we actually can get the total system behavior of the grid from your power plug up to the very, very high voltage where the power plants connect. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Wharton Current. I'm Ned Downey, PhD student in public affairs at the Princeton School of Public International Affairs. And today, Adriel Baird and Johnson and I are chatting with Frederico Rauter. He's Chief Revenue Officer at Reactive Technologies. They're a Series C grid tech startup. They've developed this pretty innovative hardware software package for helping power grid operators maintain system stability. We're gonna to talk to him today about what their product is, why it matters for the low carbon transition and how they're scaling it. And we're also gonna learn more about his career and how he's built a career that's about tackling innovation within large corporates. So let's jump right in. Hello, this is Ned Downey, PhD in Public Affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. And this is Adriel Barrett-Johnson, Wharton MBA and Lauder Masters in International Studies. And today we're going to be speaking to a startup in a very niche but very important space for the low carbon transition, which is grid management. So a little background, the low carbon grid of the future, it's going to look very different from the grid of the past, right? Some of the key technologies that produce power for us in the past, like steam turbines, combustion turbines, or powered by coal and natural gas, other fossil fuels, are going to be a much smaller share of the mix. And some of their replacements operate a lot differently. Solar and batteries, for instance, they're not turbine-based. They rely on power electronics to supply electricity. And wind and solar are both intermittent resources whose availability fluctuates on an hourly or even sub-hourly basis. So now both of those features create some new technical demands on grid operators for maintaining system stability, which is key for actually delivering the power we need for the grid. And our guest today is from a company that's providing technologies exactly targeted at that problem. Now, I'm not going to butcher the tech here, so I'll just introduce him and let him explain. He's Federico Rauter. He's chief revenue officer from London-based startup Reactive Technologies. Federico has spent his career across mobility, energy, and Internet of Things, IoT, most recently as executive vice president of sales for Siemens AG's High Voltage Transmission Solutions Unit in Latin America, where he worked to establish their Latin America regional headquarters. He also designed and implemented their go-to-market strategy and a new regional sales function. He's also held various leadership roles at Siemens, serving the smart grid, industrial, and other markets. So, Federico, welcome to the Wharton Current. You're very much there. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. To get us started, Federico, could you tell us about how you ended up at Reactive Technologies? I know you've had an illustrious career before that and done so many different things. So, would love to know how you found the company and how you chose to join it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. I'm at very mission-driven person, right? And fanatic by technology, passionate about people, and family is really important to me, right? So, you know, my wife, my kids, I have four kids, by the way, and normally they continue hammering me with nasty questions like, are you happy, Frederico, dad, at work? Are you really happy? Yeah, I'm happy. No, no, are you really happy? You know, happiness to me at work, actually, it's very much aligned to 
the potential of impact that one can generate. And when I started hearing what Reactive does, what we do, they got me on hello. Because Reactive is actually center stage in enabling, triggering faster, safer, and maybe not catchy, economically sustainable, net zero decarbonization of our society. So, you know, I was mind blown. And all of that through amazing technology, right? So that was what got me. And, and that's why I joined and, and, you know, I'm proud to say to my kids and wife, yes, I'm, I'm very happy. That's awesome. I was just talking with my dad this morning and he was reading to me something in the Atlantic about how one of the, the big pillars of happiness is doing meaningful work. It sounds like you really found that. I did. Well, don't let me wrong. I was doing amazing stuff also as humans and also very happy. But, you know, with reactors, we are really going into the core of what society needs. So yes, in fact, it is. You need to be part of something where you feel well and then you feel accomplished. So that's the story behind it. But just fell in love with it. That's a great feeling. I'd love to hear. Maybe share with our listeners more of those details about why you fell in love with it, which is like, you know, got to be part of the product. You guys have a very niche, but very important product for the low carbon transition. So explain what is the product that you're bringing, explain it to our listeners and why it can help with that transition. Glad to. So we are the only company that is able to measure in real time, in a very accurate way, inertia and system strength. And if I don't say anything else, nobody will understand, right? So let's take one step back. First, what is the mission of electrical grids? It's to take the electrons that generate in a very efficient, safe, and stable way to your homes to power up your smart or whatever runs on electricity. That's it. That's the only reason why electrical grids are there. So although it's quite simple, it's getting more and more complex. Now, put it very, very well just at the beginning, the grids were built and designed around a certain paradigm. You had this huge centralized power stations, we'll call it conventional power stations. It can be gas-fueled, coal-fueled. It can be nuclear. It can be even hydro. All of them have something in common, which is a turbine that spins. And it's the fact that the turbine is spinning that produces electricity. You have the handle to control the production of energy. And then you had the consumers. The consumers did one thing, consume. That's it. So I'm not undermining the complexity of running a grid like that. But the fact is the paradigm has shifted completely. So if we want to decarbonize grids, families want to go to low carbon or no carbon society, you really need to change the way you generate your energy. If we want to have green electrons produced, you need to go to renewables. And if you go for solar and for wind, unfortunately, you cannot pick the locations where the sun is shining more or where the wind is blowing more. It's just nature. So you have to follow nature. And that means it goes to a decentralized logic of energy production. So you can have bigger power plants from solar or renewables like utility scale. Maybe some connect at higher voltage, others at medium voltage, or even you can go to a very micro production, rooftop solar. So you can be a producer, I can be a producer, anybody can be a producer of energy, right? So from the generation point of view, it's a completely different animal. 
but also from the consumption point of view. You can consume, you can produce, you can do auto-consumption, you can put energy in the grid. Your consumption profile changes constantly, and it's very hard to predict. So you're adding up complexity at the generation side and at the consumption side. And on generation, it's not just having multiple sites, decentralized sites, mostly on remote locations. It's also that it's intermittent. The sun shines when the sun shines. You simply cannot control the, the power generation anymore. And that's exactly what power grids don't like. Instability. And what produces instability? Mismatch from production and consumption. So when I say what we do is inertia and system strength measurement, real time. Why is this important? Because inertia and system strength are the tools that grids have to actually absorb this instability. So we spoke about the power being generated by turbines. A sub-product of turbine spinning is, guess what, inertia and system strength, in a way. So what's inertia? It's like riding your bike. But if you want to ride a bike, pick up the bike, go to park on it, and what you do, you start pedaling. And what's pedaling? You're just putting energy into your system, energy into your bike, kinetic energy. You're just rotating, rotating, you're pedaling, you're getting speed, you're gaining speed. And when you gain enough speed, what happens to the bike, it gets stable. You can take off hands. You can even stop pedaling. You know, your bike continues stable. If you don't pedal anymore, after some time, maybe you go uphill a bit, you lose velocity, you lose speed. You are not putting kinetic energy into the system, which is your bike. And what happens? It gets unstable. You know, it's a good idea to get your, hand, your hands back on the bike. Ultimately, if you stop, if you don't put your feet on the ground, what happens? You fall. And that's what happens to the grids. You're changing power production from a method that actually gives stability to the grid, gives this tool, which is inertia, to a production of energy that produces instability and does not produce inertia. So the grid is lacking the tools to stabilize itself. That's why what we do is so relevant to be able to increase the renewables that we have and want to further install in a way that the grid can remain stable in a safe way and avoiding needing to put in further investments, further grid reinforcements that maybe are not needed, but that you need to put on because you have, you know, you don't have the tools to know exactly where we are in terms of grid stability. So you go the conservative way and you put on additional assets. That's again, time and overcost. And we are able to give tools, data, the insights that utility needs to run the grid up to its maximum capacity. To summarize what I understand you to be saying, it sounds like with the prior system and the technologies that we had for our grid, there would be this inertia in the turbines. And so anytime that there would be a pause in generation, the turbines themselves would still have physical inertia and could keep going for the few seconds that maybe there was some kind of very quick pause in that generation. And so the electricity could continue. And so there wouldn't actually be an interruption in the availability of electricity. But with the transition to renewables, that inertia doesn't exist. The, the way that electricity gets generated is different. And so if there's a pause in that source of generation, there isn't this built-in kind of stopgap thing where for those few seconds, 
the electricity can can continue. And so that is a new technical problem that didn't exist before, but now does. And for at least a little while, we're still going to have carbon-based technologies as part of our mix. And so they'll still be able to provide coverage when there's a gap. There still is going to be that source of inertia in the grid. But as more and more of our mix is made up by renewables, that won't be the case. And so if we are going to avoid quick blackouts where for those few seconds we stop having the lights on, we're going to need a different solution. That monitoring of that is where you all come in. Is that right? Spot on, Adrian. Perfectly explains. And so one of the questions I had is what are the typical sources for covering that lack of inertia? One of my questions would be like, why are batteries not sufficient to provide very quickly available electricity that can cover for that? Yeah, so very, very good question. So if you introduce batteries, you are kind of stabilizing the grid because batteries just will, you know, charge when there's no demand and then release the charge when there is demand. The thing is, it's still power electronics and the inverters that you use kind of follow frequency of the grid. They are not forming inertia into the grid because when you follow the frequency of the grid and there's a frequency instability, Typically, the instability gets higher rather than lower. Even if you are able to kind of counter that, you still need to be able to measure how much of it you need to put in. If you go for bioelectronics, you can't do that. So it is a nightmare for grid operators to be able to coordinate all of that distributed assets, micro assets in the grid in a way that can produce the right effects. And I understand that's where you all come in, is where the grid operators don't know what amount of inertia they have or don't have. That's the problem that you all at Reactive Technologies are solving. I'd love to understand more about the products that you are offering, not just to the grid operators, but also to energy traders, starting with the utilities. Different grids around the world are at different stages with the low carbon transition. So I imagine the way that you're interacting with different utilities varies and the needs that they have vary. So how does the way that reactive technologies can partner with utilities to address these challenges vary between the different utilities? So obviously the need for this kind of solution varies a bit on the amount of renewables that you already have on a grid. But also, let's say initially, we all thought that it also depends on the topology of the grid, you know, the way the grid is built. So if you have a weaker connected grid, you know, if your renewable parks are in a remote location and they are connected by stringy power lines, if the grid itself is more like an island, so not meshed grid, it's very stringy, and you are not interconnected with other grids, you would be a, a better candidate for this kind of solution because you really would have a, a serious issue in this circumstance. So that could be, you know, one kind of utility that you could help. In fact, our data proves that even with highly interconnected grids and highly meshed grids, smaller parts of the grid that maybe have this high renewables integration and more stringy, and they would be kind of helped out by the remaining of the grid. 
even in those cases, the situation is quite serious because what we have been seeing in our data is that even continental Europe, highly interconnected grid, you know, in the US, East and in the Western interconnection zones, they actually, from an inertia point of view, start behaving as separate, independent, regional masses that need also this kind of help. So to answer your question, we provide the same solution to any grid, any topology, because our conclusion is that all of them need this tool that can provide transparency, that can provide data and insights for better, smarter decision-making, both on the operation side and on the planning side. This solution was actually, we came up with this because we've picked the biggest brains in the telecom industry. We are a UK-based company, but our R&D is in Finland. So when, you know, Nokia had its issues, there was a lot of very good engineers in the market and we kind of picked them up and we said, look, you are amazing at telecom. Why don't you look at this energy problem? And telecom and energy, it's like two completely different worlds. It's energy is about high power, low frequency. Everything is in hertz. Telecom is about very small power, micro power, and it's about very high frequencies, kilohertz, megahertz, right? So they kind of looked at the inertia from the telecom perspective. So we've developed a very unique measurement unit, sensor unit, we can call it IoT devices that are, guess what, connected at the low voltage, meaning, you know, Adriel, you can have one of our measurement units connected to your power plug at your home or in your offices. So there's no need whatsoever to connect them at the substations, high voltage, medium voltage, low voltage substations of the grid. So we actually can get the total system behavior of the grid from your power plug up to the very, very high voltage where the power plants connect, right? And how do we measure? Well, we have this ability to pick up all the very fine perturbances on the grid. I was talking about Hertz. We connected 46 kilohertz, so we do 46,000 measurements per second, whereas, you know, normal sensors from the energy world, maximum, they do 50 hertz, 50 measurements per second. And then we ping the grid. We kind of do a very, very small power surge. We introduce a very small disturbance. Imagine a massive train and you go with a hammer and just do ping, you know, it doesn't affect at all the train. It will run the same, it's the same for the utilities. There's no operational implications whatsoever. It's really just a small ping with a hammer into the grid. And as we are exciting ourselves, the grid, we know exactly what's in there and we can measure the reaction of the grid to that thing. And if the reaction is big, small inertia, small amount of inertia. If the air reaction is small, you have a higher inertia in the grid. And we can scatter around measurement units, very low cost, very easy to connect along the grid. So you can have a very good picture of the complete grid and how it's behaved. You just described the technology really nicely to give a flavor of, of what it's offering. Do you have an estimate in percentage terms, some other terms of the cost savings or curtailment reductions that grid sonar that you guys call it, that it can enable, or maybe some range of experience from your current work with National Grid, your prior trials? 
what what kind of savings are your utilities going to experience from it? So let's first have an idea of the impact that curtailment is actually having right now. So if we think about the UK grid, in 2021 alone, the cost of curtailing wind generation meant a overcost to the British customers of 507 million pounds, 2021 alone. Yeah. There was enough renewable power to supply 800,000 British homes. And that went to waste because the system operator had to ask the wind time to switch off. And it's not only an economic cost, it's an environmental cost also. Because when you replace clean energy by gas-fired energy production, this 507 million pounds of overcost to risk customers came along with an extra 2 million tons of CO2 being emitted. So this is massive. If you go for the US, you know, Texas, leader in renewable energy production, they curtail 4.15 million megawatt hours. So it's you know, 4 gigawatt hours of energy just in winds and almost a million, 1 gigawatt hour of solar power just in 2020. You have in Texas enough wind generation capacity to power and lower the costs for, you know, 12 million homes. But the issue is that wind generation is located in part of the state, the 12.2 million scattered around the state, and you just can't bring that energy into other regions of the state because you don't have the capacity to manage the grid in the way to make it in a safe way or in a perceived safe way, right? Going again for the analogy, you know, imagine that you're driving a car in a foggy day and it's a hilly area. So that's a cliff. You don't have GPS. You can't see properly. So what do you do immediately? Hopefully you will reduce your speed and you will go as far away from the cliff as possible. That's containment. If you have GPS, you know precisely where the cliff is. So you can go safely in higher speed and closer to the edge. That's what we can bring. So about the potential. So I've been, you know, I've been mentioning, you know, we are the only ones that can do this, but does this mean that the utilities are completely blind? No. What do utilities use? They use models. The thing is, those models are based on the old world, which is the only way you can model this is and only say, I know the inertia contribution of this huge centralized combustion power plant. So I know if they are working, I know how much inertia there is in the grid. Thing is, and we've gone through this, you're replacing it for, for renewables, connecting at different levels. And so you don't know the inertia contribution because they don't contribute inertia and the conversion ends up disconnected. At some point, grid say, Hey, I can't, you know, be risky on this. I need to put in what I know, where I can calculate and what my model says when I have to have this safe operation. So I, you know, I can connect conventional power plants. So it's not that they're doing a bad job. They're doing a great job, but with the tools that they have. As you're using these models and you are pushed to be conservative, obviously you are very far away from your real grid capacity to give you a percentage. In our you know, experience with our customers, there is an offset of 20 to 30% in the levels of inertia from their models to reality. That's huge. And it gets bigger because it's not 20 to 30% all the time. And it's not 20% like 
that you think you are at the initial level and actually you are higher. It can be the other way around. You think you are safe, but actually you are at the brink of, of disaster. And it changes because it's dynamic. So the only way that you can actually run safe operation and you can actually use the full capacity of the grid is by measuring, is by transparency, is by having this data. Switching gears a little bit, you all have a six-year contract with the National Grid and you've done trials in Australia and Japan. You as the chief revenue officer, I imagine, are leading the effort to scale and expand the company. And so I'm curious how you initially identified those markets as the ones in which to run the trials and to build those relationships and how you're thinking about markets you would move into going forward. Absolutely. So we started with the grids that have apparently more issues with inertia and with system strength in terms of grid stability. And these are island grids as the UK or as Australia, but the grid itself, it's quite stringy. So basically you have collection of state grids interconnected between themselves, but it's not like a huge meshed grid like the European supergrid. There was a perceived awareness by the grid operators that they were having already a huge issue with system stability and they need to do something about it. So that's why we started with National Grid. Yeah, so that's why we went to in Japan, started discussing our solutions with Australia. By the way, exactly today, we have started our real-time inertia measurement of the Australian grid from the NAM side with our trial project with Victoria State using NeoN's Victoria Big Battery. And NEM, yeah. by the way, just to clarify, NEM is the national electricity market for Australia. Is that right? So that's yeah, it's the, the whole eastern country? side of the eastern of, side of okay. Australia. Correct. Yeah. That is um, a huge achievement. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. We're very, very, very happy. So one side of it was that. Another side of potential target customers at the first stage are, you know, more, you know, innovative, forward-thinking customers. So also very happy to announce in a few months back. We also signed a five-year commercial contract with Thai Power from Taiwan, and we are doing also inertia measurements. Thai Power, it's clearly a leading edge utility. Clear understand that even if they don't have today pressing issue, they know that they will have in the, in the near future. So they want to start doing it, and they will also kind of use their own batteries to modulate, to ping the grid, as we mentioned. In the UK, we use a dedicated asset. It's a super cap, pings the grid, and that's really important in terms also of business continuity. So we kind of have also different solutions accommodate existing assets or the need of you know, building dedicated assets. I understand that you're wanting to start relationships with grids that have the biggest issues with grid stability. And I'm just curious how you identify which ones those are. How do you know which grid operators have the biggest challenges with grid stability? Is that something that's publicly available? Is that from relationships that you go out and build? Curious how that works. Well, yes. So, so basically the grids that are pushing more and more renewables in are definitely a candidate. We thought that grids that would have a very, very high renewal situation would be the ones feeling issues. In fact, from 20 to 30% installed capacity, that's the threshold where you start having 
real issues that you need to look into. So any grid, any market that is pushing for renewables, either because they have them today or because they are planning to have them in a very short term, is a great candidate. And then today, it's not anymore about the grid topology. It's really about initial renewables push into the market. To answer your second part of the question, looking forward, where are we going? exactly to those grids. So US market is clearly one of our target markets, Texas, Eastern and passive interconnection, interconnected grids, clearly needed. Florida as a peninsula also kind of behaves a bit like an island with a very stringy long grid. And Europe, super grid from initial standpoint is not a super grid anymore. It's a collection of regional masses of inertia that needs to be handled. And I also mentioned, you know, the customers that don't have renewables today, but they are planning massive introduction of renewables. That's Middle East. We are also very happy and very proud to have some contract with National Grid Saudi Arabia, helping them getting the right tools, getting the right transparency, getting them ready for the massive amount of renewables that they are going to, to plug into the, in record timings. So this is where we are. Australia, APEC, Europe, Middle East, North America, and we are also having a close eye to South America. Basically, this is a global yeah, issue and yeah. a global problem, right? Well, so in covering all those, I think you kind of alluded to earlier how some of your early targets were utilities that were kind of on the cutting edge in a sector that tends to be fairly conservative, right? It's not known for necessarily being on the forefront of innovation. Now, you've been working in sales to this sector for your whole career, right? From your time at Siemens, you're doing high voltage transmission sales for a while. That's also a new sort of cutting edge technology for adoption. So this problem of getting utility adoption for new technology has kind of been at the core of your career in a lot of ways. What do you find to be the keys for winning that? How do you get this conservative sector to acquire new technologies? I'd like to challenge that a bit. So I don't think utilities aren't innovative at all. Utilities are not slower because they want to be slower or because they don't care about innovation. Actually, utilities, it's a really very high human capital business. So you have engineers that are, you know, really good, really not what they do. They have a lot of experience. So actually utilities, they kind of push innovation really hard, very much. You know, in order to push this kind of technology and go for innovation, I think you need, you know, one, you need the will, right? The need and the will that comes along. The need kind of triggers the will. You need the knowledge. You need the capacity, you know, in terms of the ability to make it happen. And so you need the tools, you know, kind of to spike it and to push forward. So if you go for the utility world, the will, it's there. Either because you, you know, culturally, you are a company that is more prone to innovation or even if, you know, either you don't have that much a culture inside or you have that culture, but you know, you are so consumed with firefighting that you can't have the focus to kind of push forward, but the need is there. So the need will produce the will. Will is not the issue. Knowledge, definitely not the issue. You know, you have the brightest minds and the biggest experience. It can really help going, tackling, and, and understanding what really needs to be done, right? So knowledge is not an issue also. Capacity, 
I think it's one of the key issues. COVID completely changed everything, right? So people, you know, not the people went, you know, to early retirement. Others said, oh, I don't want this anymore. I want to do another thing in another state, another location, another life, whatever. So utilities more and more constrained in terms of the bandwidth that they have to solve their own issues. I, you know, the firefighting, it's really hard to be able to have the availability of those resources, to have the capacity to kind of do the innovation and implementing it. Either doing innovation or implementing the innovation, there is a resource issue, there's a capacity issue there. And then the tools, right? And that's where also we come in. Because in the utility world, utility means safety. Utility means stable operations. An issue in the electrical grid is a serious business. So if you want to kind of connect any kind of equipment in a substation, you nearly need to be very careful. So from the product point of view, it needs to be homologated, it needs to be kind of bulletproof. And from the installation point of view, again, you need to do it via very highly skilled people that can actually do that, trained and certified to do that. And as we mentioned, there's no resources available. So it's slow and expensive installing the product. So any project that needs this integrated into the grid will just explode in time and cost. That's from the product side. If you go for IT or software, the same thing. You need to integrate into your SCADA, into your IT environment, into your operational technology environment. That means, you know, cybersecurity issues, integration issues. It's not just about the cost of the software. It's about the internal cost of having your resources, IT, engineering, being able to integrate the software into your landscape. So it's massive in time. It's massive on resource requirements. It's massive on cost, internal costs. So typically, when you go for a utility and you do an innovation project, whatever push for technology or new technology, it gets extended in time and cost. So that's the beauty of our solution because we actually developed our solution having this in mind and in a sense to tackle and mitigate all of the key issues that you asked me, why does it take so long for utilities to push new technologies? Our measurement units is as simple as plugging it to your power plug. You don't need a highly skilled installation crew. You can do it with more available and less costly services and very fast. In the UK, we've put in the 40 measurement units we needed to measure the whole grid of the UK. By the way, it's not that much, it's only 40. And we did it in one month. Utilities that need to plug in, for example, PMUs, which actually measure the, the power flows of the grid that actually need to be connected at power station, you take five years to install 10. Actually, in the UK, the rollout of the PMUs hasn't finished for decades. So that's the equipment side. What about resources? And what about IT integration? Well, we do it in a turnkey way. So we have the XMUs in the ground. We ping the grid, gather that data, process that data. We do all the data analytics. And what do we do? We just provide not only the data, but insights that come with the data to the teams at the control center, to the teams of the planning departments of the customer in a cybersecurity bulletproof way, 
without needing any IT or T integration. Again, extremely fast. And on top of it, we do not need to overwhelm the utilities with utility-owned resources. Just about getting the training, just about getting the people understanding their data, and then they can get all of these insights and integrate into their own processes and use that data as a support for smarter decision making. So, how can you help utilities do it faster? Working with companies like Reactive that actually develop solutions, because we know what are the key issues about pushing technology into utilities, and you can do this very, very fast. It's not anymore about a couple of years with a huge internal cost and the need for internal resources. So, you know, that's, in our perspective, the way to go to help utilities push technology and help society going forward with decarbonization of grids. That's a perfect transition. On a personal level, you started as a consultant and then spent most of your career before Reactive in large corporations. SNCF in France and Siemens. And you've had the kind of career that a lot of our listeners would love to have. You've had an international career. You've worked in so many places doing really impactful work. You know, for me, when I saw that you had opened the regional office in Latin America for Siemens, I was like, wow, that is a dream. And I know you've found a lot of happiness in your work. And so I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit on your career two questions. One is, what has the transition been like for you from that really established environment at those large corporations to being the chief revenue officer for a startup? And then more generally, how have you thought about your career, about career planning and building your career in such an international way? Thank you. Great, great questions. I'd love to comment. So yeah, in fact, I was, you know, fortunate enough to have this opportunities to be part of very interesting projects. Well, I think part of it is you need to look for it, right? So you need to kind of signal and kind of say, well, I'm up for a challenge. So what are the issues? I'm here to help. I'm open to be part of the solution. I would love to do that. And it's not that common, particularly in big organizations, that you don't have a lot of people say, you know, I'm up for risk. Just throw me to the lions and then and I'll try to survive and do something good about it. So one thing is, search for it, go for it, just take the risk. So that's one. Then it's true that SNCF is a huge corporation, you know, the train operator, it's France. Siemens is a huge corporation. Boston Consulting Group, as part of my early years as consultant, is also a huge corporation. But it was also the fact that I've kind of this drive and search for challenges and for doing the search for the unknown inside of these corporations, I kind of been thrown into the situations where it's a big corporation, but CNCF was about doing a PhD on developing new software on high-speed trains to kind of lower the whole system cost of running high-speed trains with pentagraphs and catenaries. It's something that had never been done. At Siemens, it was about you know, starting up new businesses, having new ideas, getting people thinking, how do we do this? Going for it, turning around units, we're going through a hard time, and then thinking about, okay, so what else new can we do about this? And having an idea and kind of developing completely new products and completely new business line out of the region 
And then saying headquarters, hey, we have this great idea. And this is like the salvation of the unit. So that's what we are here for. Shall we go for it? After that, you know, great experience of developing a new product. It was a kind of AI meets IoT for the industry in terms of energy efficiency. I was invited to go to headquarters to the high voltage transmission unit, which is like this EPC unit. And when I was there, there was this massive strategic shift on saying, well, we stopped doing our centralized headquarter um, governance model and we go for the region. So we will have regional headquarters. Latin America will be one of them. And I was fortunate enough to be challenged to be part of the team and build it up completely build new cells, our organization within that regional hub, code to mark, everything, process tools. So although it's big corporations, at the end of the day, if you go for this kind of challenges, you are kind of in an entrepreneurial mindset always and an experience. So when I reached Reactive, it wasn't new. And Reactive is a great company. It's startup, scale up. If you're up to serve the world, if you would love to do that through groundbreaking, amazing technology with a startup that has an amazing culture, it is an absolute pleasure. I can't say this, I can't stress this out more. It's an absolute pleasure to deal and be part of this team in a daily way. You know, reach out, be interested. Well, where, where should people go to learn more about Reactive? Well, you can go to a website, you can go to LinkedIn, we share a lot of news, we share a lot of provocative ideas and thoughts. You can call me, happy to share all my content details, phone me, email me, happy to discuss. So one thing that we love at Reactive is a discussion, right? We love being challenged, we love being, you know, thrown at the walls, say, well, you know, why didn't you think about this? Because that's also what, how you innovate, right? Uh, and definitely, we're happy to share some of those details. If listeners want to reach out to Adriel and I, we can put you guys in touch with Federico. Federico, thank you so much for sharing, for being so generous with your time, and for being reflective on your career and your life and your work. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for this. Really enjoyed the discussion. And that's our show for today. Thanks again to Federico for joining us. Now, if you like this conversation, please spread the good word online. You can find us and tag us at The Wharton Current on Instagram and at Wharton Current on Twitter. And do reach out to us if you're interested in connecting with Federico. My email is in the show notes below. So look out for more episodes from us this summer and stay tuned. <laughs>